is Chicago's finest internet radio show, making a world a better place, one show at a time. The George Water Jr. Show is now on the air. Take it away, Dad. George Wilder Jr. Show. I have an unusual setup here, folks. Somehow, uh, the Black Talk Radio organization, they have <laughs> suggested a new setup for me. I'm still trying to get used to it. But uh, I'm hearing that this is only temporarily. So it's, it's a bit different from, um, uh, from my everyday itinerary uh, of doing things on the show. It's a little different. I'm trying to get used to it. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. Okay, my guest today is Gab Gabe Terpinski. Terpinski. I hope I'm pronouncing his name okay because I am doing this <laughs> differently than I've done it yesterday and the day before and last week, maybe two years ago. And I'm hoping this is um, this is only temporary. Anyway, welcome to the George Wilder Jr. Show. Hate has no home here. Be nice to one another. It is so easy. We all know that Republicans lie, cheat, con, bullshit their way into office. Basically, what I'm saying is don't lose sight of your mission, of their misdeeds, and to vote them out of office, okay? Come um, November uh, 6, 2018. Vote, 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 vote. Anyway, welcome to the George Wilder Jr. Show. I'm glad to be here, folks. It's a little different setup here because of uh, um, not my mistakes, not, not my goof-up, but the uh, – uh, the outlet that I'm using uh, to produce and to host this radio show, the George Wilder Jr. Show. All righty, let's move right along. Um, I'm, I, I'm, this just came across my desk. Rape charges against the actor Steven Seagal. I mean, he weighs about 300 pounds now, so apparently this is um, years ago. Steven Seagal. And I was reading somewhere, I heard him say somewhere that these were lies, that they weren't true. Um, but they're going to be talking more about this on Good Morning America. So, I'm, I mean, I'm really not interested in Steven Seagal or his problems. Or James Franco, actor James Franco. Uh, he is being nailed to the cross also. I think about five women came out and accused him of um, sexual misconduct. And he all but admitted it on uh, on the Tonight Show with um, um, anyway on the Tonight Show. I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, probably later on into the show. All right, you're listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show. Follow me on Facebook. I'm all over the place. Uh, these sexual charges against these actors. I mean, it just keeps coming, just keeps coming. James Franco, actor James Franco. I, I, he is. I'm just discovering that this guy is or maybe was, uh, depending on the results of this, these uh, uh, rape allegations, a pretty good actor and also a super director. And he's young. He started out young. You know, I recall him from um, the Spider-Man trilogy with uh, Tobey Maguire, which I actually think, folks, I actually think that Tobey, Tobey, if you're into this kind of thing, I actually think that Tobey uh, Maguire was the best Spider-Man ever. 
you know, I, uh, Tom Holland, uh, this other guy, uh, I mean, no, no, Tobey Maguire. Of course he can't play Spider-Man again because he's too old. He's in his 40s. But when he did play Spider-Man, he was the best. And this is where I know James Franco best is from Spider-Man trilogy, even though he's made a ton of stuff after that and even before that. But my take on him is from the uh, Spider-Man trilogy. Anyway, uh, I was reading his bio and everything else about him, and this man, is, is he's directed movies, he's produced them, he's written them, and now he's being destroyed because of rape allegations made against him. You know, so, and if you, if, if you read and listen to some of these women who are testifying against him, talking against him, you'd probably say, hey, wow, they have a legitimate claim. This sounds like something he could have done or could have uh, established, you know. So, um, But uh, Steven Seagal, I couldn't care if this guy hang or, or continue to make rotten movies because Steven Seagal has made a lot of rotten movies. I mean, especially after the, the ones he's had in the 80s and the 90s, the early ones were better, but, uh, but his movies are, you don't see his movies in the theaters because they go straight to video. They're just that bad. <laughs> and sad to say, I got a few of them myself. I got some some of them myself. I don't watch them. They're just taking up room. Anyway, um, yeah, so that's what's coming out of Hollywood, you know. So, I mean, Hollywood has, as you probably know, folks, uh, Hollywood has been rocked with scandal, uh, with the sexual misconduct, with the sexual misconduct caused by men actors and producers and directors. This is this is phenomenal. You know, this is phenomenal. Like I said before folks, I'm in a I'm a, <laughs> I'm doing this show if I sound a little different or or uh, sound like I'm in a uh, uh a dome or something, it's because I'm doing this this is different, a uh, uh, kind of an unusual way for me. And I've never done this before. Maybe once or twice but I usually, whenever I have to do it this way, I'm on the phone. I'm, I'm doing my show on the phone instead of uh, with a microphone in, in front of me and earphones on my on my um, ears. You know, so this is a little different for me because I've been doing this show for almost four years and um, <laughs> microphone in front of me and uh, earphones. But now I'm on the phone. I'm on my phone, personal phone. <laughs> Yeah. I wonder if Block Talk, if they're going to compensate me or reimburse me for the charges. I doubt it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, the number is 773-857-1762. You cannot. Oh, yeah. I wanted to say something about daylight savings time. You know, I think daylight savings time, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people around the world think the same thing. This, This is. I think it's a no-brainer that daylight savings time should be all year round. I mean, there should be no change in the clocks. I mean, who doesn't like uh, two or three extra hours of sunshine or of daylight? We all want that. So uh, I think in Pennsylvania, I believe they're, they're – um, I'm not sure, but I think it's Pennsylvania. They're uh, trying to get the legislature to uh, – make it a law that uh, uh, daylight saving, saving times is all through the year. 
and I would agree. I would probably say the same thing for Illinois, even the even the entire United States. I don't know what their reasoning are for wanting daylight saving time or something. Uh, save it saves uh, money on light bills or something. I don't know what the hell that means. You know, all I know is that the majority of the Ameri- Americans want daylight savings time. They want their days to last, last a little longer because during the winter times, the winter, especially here in the city of Chicago, it, it gets dark around 4 o'clock, 4.30. You know, it's pitch black, you know. <laughs> We need a flashlight to walk down the street, you know, so it would be a really, really great and an honor and just the right thing to do uh, pertaining to daylight saving times. We all want to see the sun out a little bit longer. We want to be outside a little bit longer. Uh, it gets dark early. Everybody runs in the house and locks the doors. The criminals are out. But uh we need daylight savings time. We really do need it, and uh, I'm going to push for it. I'm going to be I'm going to be pushing for it, and uh, and I know if enough Mer- Americans do this, we can we can get this changed. We can have daylight savings time um, all year round. What do you think of it? I mean, I, I know you. If you if you think it, great. Drop me drop me uh, a message in my e-box, e-box on Facebook or you know whatever. And uh, tell me what you what you think about daylight savings time all year round. I mean, the kids can be outside playing a little longer, you know. Uh, it's just great. It's just a great thing to do, I think. All right, you've been listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show on Blog Talk Radio. Remember, um, Gabe Tupersky is on the show. Let me try this again. Gabe Tupersky. Okay, International Insights on the George Wilder Jr. Show. All right, we're now on the air, but it's, it's, a, it's a little bit unusual. I'm stuttering as usually. Um, uh, it's a bit, bit unusual, and I do have a guest today, and we're going to try and do this, get through this. I'm going <laughs> to figure out a way of getting through this. All righty. Uh, you're listening to the George Wilder Jr. Show on Block Talk Radio. How am I doing so far, folks? Sometimes I think I need to hear that. We're coming at you from a different angle here. And um, this is the George Wilder Jr. Show on Blog Talk Radio. Ashley Judd, stupid fucking slut. You can't sue someone for calling them a cunt. If you can't handle the internet, fuck off, whore. I wish Ashley Judd would die a horrible death. She is the absolute worst. Ashley Judd, you're the reason women shouldn't vote. Twisted is such a bad movie, I don't even want to rape it. Whatever you do, don't tell Ashley Judge she'll die alone with a dried-out vagina. If I had to fuck an older woman, oh my God, I would fuck the shit out of Ashley Judd. That bitch is hot AF. The unforgivable shit I would do to her. Online misogyny 
is a global gender rights tragedy, and it is imperative that it ends. women's voices and our allies' voices are constrained in ways that are personally, economically, professionally, and politically damaged. And when we curb abuse, we will expand freedom. I am a Kentucky basketball fan, so on a fine March day last year, I was doing one of the things I do best. I was cheering for my Wildcats. The daffodils were blooming, but the referees were not blowing the whistle when I was telling them to. <laughs> Funny, they're very friendly to me before the opening tip, but they really ignore me during the game. Three of my players were bleeding, so I did the next best thing. I tweeted. It is routine for me to be treated in the ways I've already described to you. It happens to me every single day on social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. Since I joined Twitter in 2011, misogyny and misogynists have amply demonstrated they will dog my every step. My spirituality, my faith, being a hillbilly, I can say that, you can't, all of it is fair game. And I have responded to this with various strategies. I've tried engaging people. This one guy was sending me hyper-sexual, nasty stuff, and there was a girl in his avatar, and I wrote him back and said, is that your daughter? I feel a lot of fear that you may think about and talk to women this way. And he surprised me by saying, you know what, you're right, I apologize. Sometimes people want to be held accountable. This one guy was musing to I don't know who, that maybe I was the definition of a cunt. I was married to a Scot for 14 years, so I said, cunt means many different things in different countries. But I'm pretty sure you epitomize the global standard of a dick. I've tried to rise above it, I've tried to get in the trenches, but mostly I would scroll through these social media platforms with one eye partially closed, trying not to see it, but you can't make a cucumber out of a pickle. What is seen goes in, it's traumatic. And I was always secretly hoping in some part of me that what was being said to me and about me wasn't true. Because even I, an avowed, self-declared feminist, who worships at the altar of Gloria, <laughs> internalize the patriarchy. This is really critical. Patriarchy is not boys and men. It is a system in which we all participate, including me. On that particular day, for some reason, that particular tweet after the basketball game triggered something called a cyber mob, this vitriolic, global outpouring of the most heinous hate speech, death threats, rape threats. And don't you know, when I was sitting at home alone in my nightgown, I got a phone call, and it was my beloved former husband, and he said on a voicemail, loved one, what is happening to you is not okay. And there was something about him taking a stand for me that night that allowed me to take a stand for myself, and I started to write. I started to write about sharing the fact that I'm a survivor of all forms of sexual abuse, including three rapes, and the hate speech I get in response to that. These are just some of the comments posted to news outlets 
Being told I'm a snitch is really fun. Thank you, Jesus. May your grace and mercy shine. So I wrote this feminist op-ed. It is entitled, Forget Your Teen. It is your online gender violence toward girls and women that can kiss my righteous ass. <laughs> and I did that alone, and I published it alone, because my chief advisor said, please don't. The rain of retaliatory garbage that is inevitable, I fear for you. But I trust girls, and I trust women, and I trust our allies. It was published. It went viral. It proves that every single day, online misogyny is a phenomenon endured by us all, all over the world. And when it is intersectional, it is worse. Sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, religion, you name it, it amplifies the violence endured by girls and women. And for our younger girls, it is worse. It's clearly traumatizing. Our mental health, our emotional well-being are so gravely affected because the threat of violence is experienced neurobiologically as violence. The cortisol shoots up. The limbic system gets fired. We lose productivity at work. And let's talk about work. Our ability to work is constrained. Online searches of women applying for jobs reveal nude pictures of them, false allegations they have STDs, their addresses indicating that they are available for sex. With real examples of people showing up at this house for said sex. Our ability to go to school is impaired. 96% of all postings of sexual images in our young people girls, our girls, our boys are two to three times more likely non-consensually to share images. And I want to say a word about revenge porn. Part of what came out of this tweet was my getting connected with allies and other activists who are fighting for a safe and free internet. We started something called the Speech Project, curbing abuse, expanding freedom. And that website provides a critical forum because there is no global legal thing to help us figure this out. But we do provide on that website a standardized list of definitions because it's hard to attack a behavior in the right way if we're not all sharing a definition of what that behavior is. And I learned that revenge porn is often dangerously misapplied. It is the non-consensual sharing of an image used tactically to shame and humiliate a girl or woman that attempts to pornography us. Our natural sexuality is, I don't know about yours, pretty gorgeous and wonderful. And my expressing it does not pornography make. So I have all these resources that I'm keenly aware so many people in the world do not. I was able to start the speech project with colleagues. I can often get a social media company's attention. I have a wonderful visit to Facebook HQ coming up. Hasn't helped the idiotic reporting standards yet. I actually pay someone to scrub my social media feeds attempting to spare my brain the daily iterations of the trauma of hate speech. And guess what? I get hate speech for that. Oh, you live in an echo chamber. Well, guess what? 
Having someone post a photograph of me with my mouth open saying they can't wait to come on my face, I have a right to set that boundary. And this distinction between virtual and real is specious because guess what? That actually happened to me once when I was a child and so that tweet brought up that trauma and I had to do work on that. But you know what we do? We take all of this hate speech and we disaggregate it and we code it and we give that data so that we understand the intersectionality of it. You know, when I get porn, when it's about political affiliation, when it's about age, when it's about all of it. We're going to win this fight. There are a lot of solutions. Thank goodness. I'm going to offer just a few. And of course, I challenge you to create and contribute your own. Number one, we have to start with digital media literacy. And clearly, it must have a gendered lens. Kids, schools, caregivers, parents, it's essential. Two. Shall we talk about our friends in tech? Said with dignity and respect, the sexism in your workplaces must end. Edge, the global standard for gender equality is the minimum standard and guess what? Silicon Valley, if L'Oreal in India, in the Philippines, in Brazil, and in Russia can do it, you can too. Enough excuses. Only when women have critical mass in every department at your companies, including building platforms from the ground up, will the conversations about priorities and solutions change. And more love for my friends in tech, profiteering off misogyny and video games must end. I'm so tired of hearing you talk to me at cocktail parties like you did a couple weeks ago in Aspen about how deplorable hashtag Gamergate was when you're still making billions of dollars off games that maim and dump women for sport. Basta, as the Italians would say. Enough. Our friends in law enforcement have much to do because we've seen that online violence is an extension of in-person violence. In our country, more girls and women have been murdered by their intimate partners than died on 9-11 and have died since in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. And it's not cool to say that, but it is true. We care so much geopolitically about what men are doing over there to women over there, in 2015, 72,828 women used intimate partner violence services in this country. That is not counting the girls and women and boys who needed them. Law enforcement must be empowered with up-to-date internet technology, the devices, and an understanding of these platforms, how they work. The police wanted to be helpful when Amanda Hess called about the death threat she was getting on Twitter, but they couldn't really when they said, what's Twitter? Our legislators must write and pass astute legislation that reflects today's technology and our notions of free and hate speech. In New York recently, the law could not be applied to a perpetrator because the crimes must have been committed, even if it was anonymous, they must have been committed by telephone, in mail, by telegraph, 
<laughs> the language must be technologically neutral. So apparently, I've got a pretty bold voice. So let's talk about our friends, white men. You have a role to play and a choice to make. You can do something or you can do nothing. We're cool in this room, but when this goes out, everyone will say, oh my God, she's a reverse racist. That quote was said by a white man, Robert Morris, chairperson, Price Waterhouse Cooper. He asked me to include it in my talk. We need to grow support lines and help groups so victims can help each other when their lives and finances have been derailed. We must, as individuals, disrupt gender violence. As it is happening, 92% of young people, 29 and under, witness it. 72% of us have witnessed it. We must have the courage and urgency to practice stopping it as it is unfolding. And lastly, believe her. Believe her. This is fundamentally a problem of human interaction. And thus, I believe that human interaction is at the core of our healing. Trauma not transformed will be trauma transferred. Edith Wharton said the end is latent in the beginning, so we are going to end this talk replacing hate speech with love speech. Because I get lonely in this, but I know that we are allies. I recently learned about how gratitude and affirmations offset negative interactions. It takes five of those to offset one negative interaction. And gratitude in particular, free, available globally, anytime, anywhere, to anyone in any dialect. It fires the pregenual anterior singlet, a watershed part of the brain that floods it with great good stuff. So I'm going to say awesome stuff about myself. I would like for you to reflect it back to me. It might sound something like this. I am a powerful and strong woman, and you would say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. My mama loves me. Yes, she does. I did a great job with my talk. Yes, you did. I have a right to be here. Yes, you do. I'm really cute. Yes, you are. God does good work. Yes, he does. And I love you. Thank you so much for letting me be of service.
All I wanted was a much-deserved promotion, and he told me to get up on the desk and spread them. All the men in my office wrote down on a piece of paper the sexual favors that I could do for them. All I had asked for was an office with a window. I asked for his advice about how I could get a bill out of committee. He asked me if I brought my knee pads. Those are just a few of the horrific stories that I heard from women over the last year as I've been investigating workplace sexual harassment. And what I found out is that it's an epidemic across the world. It's a horrifying reality for millions of women when all they want to do every day is go to work. Sexual harassment doesn't discriminate. You can wear a skirt, hospital scrubs, army fatigues. You can be young or old, married or single, black or white. You can be a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. I heard from so many women, police officers, members of our military, financial assistants, actors, engineers, lawyers. Bankers, accountants, teachers, journalists. Sexual harassment—it turns out—is not about sex. It's about power, and about what somebody does to you to try and take away your power. And I'm here today to encourage you to know that you can take that power back. On July 6, 2016, I jumped off a cliff all by myself. It was the scariest moment of my life—an excruciating choice to make. I fell into an abyss all alone, not knowing what would be below. But then something miraculous started to happen. Thousands of women started reaching out to me to share their own stories of pain and agony and shame. They told me that I became their voice. They were voiceless, and suddenly I realized that even in the 21st century, every woman still has a story, like Joyce, a flight attendant supervisor whose boss in meetings every day would tell her about the porn that he'd watched the night before while drawing penises on his notepad. She went to complain. She was called crazy and fired. Like Joanne, Wall Street banker, her male colleagues would call her that vile c-word every day. She complained, labeled a troublemaker, never to do another Wall Street deal again. Like Elizabeth, an army officer, her male subordinates would wave one-dollar bills in her face and say, "Dance for me." And when she went to complain to a major, he said, "What? Only one dollar? You're worth at least five or ten." After reading, replying to all, and crying over all of these emails, I realized I had so much work to do. Here are the startling facts: one in three women that we know of have been sexually harassed in the workplace. Seventy-one percent of those incidences never get reported. Why? Because when women come forward, 
They're still called liars and troublemakers and demeaned and trashed and demoted and blacklisted and fired. Reporting sexual harassment can be, in many cases, career-ending. Of all the women that reached out to me, almost none are still today working in their chosen profession, and that is outrageous. I too was silent in the beginning. It happened to me at the end of my year as Miss America, when I was meeting with a very high-ranking TV executive in New York City. I thought he was helping me throughout the day, making a lot of phone calls. We went to dinner, and in the back seat of a car, he suddenly lunged on top of me and stuck his tongue down my throat. I didn't realize that to get into the business, silly me. He also intended to get into my pants. And just a week later, when I was in Los Angeles, meeting with a high-ranking publicist, it happened again. Again in a car, and he took my neck in his hand, and he shoved my head so hard into his crotch I couldn't breathe. These are the events that suck the life out of all of your self-confidence. These are the events that, until recently, I didn't even call assault. And this is why we have so much work to do. After my years, Miss America, I continued to meet a lot of well-known people, including Donald Trump. When this picture was taken in 1988, nobody could have ever predicted where we'd be today. <laughs> Me fighting to end sexual harassment in the workplace. He. President of the United States, in spite of it, and shortly thereafter, I got my first gig in television news in Richmond, Virginia. Check out that confident smile with the bright pink jacket. Not so much the hair. <laughs> I was working so hard to prove that blondes have a lot of brains. But ironically, one of the first stories I covered was the Anita Hill hearings in Washington, D.C., and shortly thereafter. I too was sexually harassed in the workplace. I was covering a story in rural Virginia, and when we got back into the car, my cameraman started saying to me, wondering how much I had enjoyed when he touched my breasts when he put the microphone on me, and it went downhill from there. I was bracing myself against the passenger door. This was before cell phones. I was petrified. I actually envisioned myself rolling outside of that door as the car was going 50 miles per hour, like I'd seen in the movies, and wondering how much it would hurt. When the story about Harvey Weinstein came to light, one of the most well-known movie moguls in all of Hollywood, the allegations were horrific. But so many women came forward, and it made me realize what I had done meant something. He had such a lame excuse. He said he was a product of the '60s and '70s, and that that was the culture then. Yeah, that was the culture then, and unfortunately, it still is. Why? Because of all the myths that are still associated with sexual harassment. Women should just take another job and find another career. 
Yeah, right. Tell that to the single mom working two jobs, trying to make ends meet, who's also being sexually harassed. Women, they bring it on themselves by the clothes that we wear and the makeup that we put on. Yeah, I guess those hoodies that Uber engineers wear in Silicon Valley are just so provocative. <laughs> Women make it up. Yeah, because it's so fun and rewarding to be demeaned and taken down. I would know. Women bring these claims because they want to be famous and rich. Our own president said that. I bet Taylor Swift. One of the most well-known and richest singers in the world didn't need more money or fame when she came forward with her groping case for one dollar, and I'm so glad she did. Breaking news: the untold story about women and sexual harassment in the workplace. Women just want a safe, welcoming, and harass-free environment. That's it. So how do we go about getting our power back? I have three solutions. Number one, we need to turn bystanders and enablers into allies. Ninety-eight percent of United States corporations right now have sexual harassment training policies. Seventy percent have prevention programs. But still, overwhelmingly, bystanders and witnesses don't come forward. In 2016, the Harvard Business Review. Called it the bystander effect, and yet remember 9/11. Millions of times we've heard, "If you see something, say something." Imagine how impactful that would be if we carried that through to bystanders in the workplace regarding sexual harassment. To recognize and interrupt these incidences, to confront the perpetrators to their face. To help and protect the victims. This is my shout out to men. We need you in this fight, and to women too, enablers, to allies. Number two, change the laws. How many of you out there know whether or not you have a forced arbitration clause in your employment contract? Not a lot of hands, and if you don't know, you should. And here's why. Time magazine calls it right there on the screen, the teeny tiny little print in contracts that keeps sexual harassment claims unheard. Here's what it is: forced arbitration takes away your Seventh Amendment right to an open jury process. It's secret. You don't get the same witnesses or depositions. In many cases, the company picks the arbitrator for you. There are no appeals, and only 20% of the time does the employee win. But again, it's secret, so nobody ever knows what happened to you. This is why I've been working so diligently on Capitol Hill in Washington D.C. to change the laws. And here's what I tell the senators: Sexual harassment is apolitical. Before somebody harasses you, they don't ask you if you're a Republican or Democrat first. They just do it. And this is why we should all care. Number three: Be fierce. It starts when we stand tall. And we build that self-confidence, and we stand up, and we speak up, and we tell the world what happened to us. 
I know it's scary, but let's do it for our kids. Let's stop this for the next generations. I know that I did it for my children. They were paramount in my decision making about whether or not I would come forward. My beautiful children, my 12-year-old son Christian, my 14-year-old daughter Kaya, and boy, did I underestimate them. The first day of school last year happened to be the day my resolution was announced, and I was so anxious about what they would face. And my daughter came home from school, and she said, "Mommy, so many people asked me what happened to you over the summer." And then she looked at me in the eyes, and she said, "And mommy, I was so proud to say that you were my mom." And two weeks later, when she finally found the courage to stand up to two kids who'd been making her life miserable. She came home to me and she said, "Mommy, I found the courage to do it because I saw you do it." You see, giving the gift of courage is contagious. And I hope that my journey has inspired you. Because right now it's the tipping point. We are watching history happen. More and more women are coming forward and saying, "Enough is enough." Here's my one last plea to companies: Let's hire back all those women whose careers were lost because of some random jerk. Because here's what I know about women: we will no longer be underestimated, intimidated, or set back. We will not be silenced by the ways of the establishment or the relics of the past. No. We will stand up, and speak up, and have our voices heard. We will be the women we were meant to be. And above all, we will always. Be fierce. Thank you. Thank you. The George Wilder Jr. Show is now on the air. It is all about making the world a better place. Join me.
I'm here today to talk about a disturbing question, which has an equally disturbing answer. My topic is the secrets of domestic violence. And the question I'm going to tackle is the one question everyone always asks. Why does she stay? Why would anyone stay with a man who beats her? I'm not a psychiatrist, a social worker, or an expert in domestic violence. I'm just one woman with a story to tell. I was 22. I had just graduated from Harvard College. I'd moved to New York City for my first job as a writer and editor at Seventeen Magazine. I had my first apartment, my first little green American Express card, and I had a very big secret. My secret was that I had this gun loaded with hollow point bullets pointed at my head by the man who I thought was my soulmate many, many times. The man who I loved more than anybody on earth held a gun to my head and threatened to kill me more times than I can even remember. I'm here to tell you the story of crazy love, a psychological trap disguised as love, one that millions of women and even a few men fall into every year. It may even be your story. I don't look like a typical domestic violence survivor. I have a BA in English from Harvard College, an MBA in marketing from Wharton Business School. I spent most of my career working for Fortune 500 companies, including Johnson & Johnson, Leo Burnett, and The Washington Post. I've been married for almost 20 years to my second husband, and we have three kids together. My dog is a black lab, and I drive a Honda Odyssey minivan. <laughs> so my first message for you is that domestic violence happens to everyone. All races, all religions, all income and education levels. It's everywhere. And my second message is that everyone thinks domestic violence happens to women, that it's a women's issue. Not exactly. Over 85% of abusers are men. And domestic abuse happens only in intimate, interdependent, long-term relationships. In other words, in families the last place we would want or expect to find violence, which is one reason domestic abuse is so confusing. I would have told you myself that I was the last person on earth who would stay with a man who beats me. But in fact, I was a very typical victim because of my age. I was 22. And in the United States, women ages 16 to 24 are three times as likely to be domestic violence victims as women of other ages. And over 500 women and girls this age are killed every year by abusive partners, boyfriends, and husbands in the United States. I was also a very typical victim because I knew nothing about domestic violence, its warning signs or its patterns. I met Connor on a cold, rainy January night. He sat next to me on the New York City subway, and he started chatting me up. He told me two things. One was that he, too, had just graduated from an Ivy League school and that he worked at a very impressive Wall Street bank. But what made the biggest impression on me that first meeting was that he was smart and funny. And he looked like a farm boy. He had these big cheeks, these big apple cheeks and this wheat blonde hair, and he seemed so sweet. One of the smartest things Connor did from the very beginning 
was to create the illusion that I was the dominant partner in the relationship. He did this, especially at the beginning, by idolizing me. We started dating, and he loved everything about me. That I was smart, that I'd gone to Harvard, that I was passionate about helping teenage girls and my job. He wanted to know everything about my family and my childhood, my hopes and dreams. Connor believed in me as a writer and a woman in a way that no one else ever had. And he also created a magical atmosphere of trust between us by confessing his secret, which was that as a very young boy starting at age four, he had been savagely and repeatedly physically abused by his stepfather. And the abuse had gotten so bad that he had had to drop out of school in eighth grade, even though he was very smart. And he'd spent almost 20 years rebuilding his life, which is why that Ivy League degree and the Wall Street job and his bright, shiny future meant so much to him. If you had told me that this smart, funny, sensitive man who adored me would one day dictate whether or not I wore makeup, how short my skirts were, where I lived, what jobs I took, who my friends were, and where I spent Christmas, I would have laughed at you. Because there was not a hint of violence or control or anger in Connor at the beginning. I didn't know that the first stage in any domestic violence relationship is to seduce and charm the victim. I also didn't know that the second step is to isolate the victim. Now, Connor did not come home one day and announce, you know, hey, this, all this Romeo and Juliet stuff has been great, but I need to move into the next phase where I isolate you and I abuse you. <laughs> so I need to get you out of this apartment where the neighbors can hear you scream and out of this city where you have friends and family and coworkers who can see the bruises. Instead, Connor came home one Friday evening and he told me that he had quit his job that day, his dream job. And he said that he had quit his job because of me, because I had made him feel so safe and loved that he didn't need to prove himself on Wall Street anymore. And he just wanted to get out of the city and away from his abusive, dysfunctional family and move to a tiny town in New England where he could start his life over with me by his side. Now, the last thing I wanted to do was leave New York and my, my dream job. But I thought you made sacrifices for your soulmate. So I agreed, and I quit my job, and Connor and I left Manhattan together. I had no idea I was falling into crazy love, that I was walking headfirst into a carefully laid physical, financial, and psychological trap. The next step in the domestic violence pattern is to introduce the threat of violence and see how she reacts. And here's where those guns come in. As soon as we moved to New England, you know that place where Connor was supposed to feel so safe? He bought three guns. He kept one in the glove compartment of our car. He kept one under the pillows on our bed. And the third one he kept in his pocket at all times. And he said that he needed those guns because of the trauma he'd experienced as a young boy. He needed them to feel protected. But those guns were really a message for me. And even though he hadn't raised a hand to me, my life was already in grave danger every minute of every day. 
Connor first physically attacked me five days before our wedding. It was 7 a.m. I still had on my nightgown. I was working on my computer trying to finish a freelance writing assignment, and I got frustrated. And Connor used my anger as an excuse to put both of his hands around my neck and to squeeze so tightly that I could not breathe or scream. And he used the chokehold to hit my head repeatedly against the wall. Five days later, the ten bruises on my neck had just faded, and I put on my mother's wedding dress, and I married him. Despite what had happened, I was sure we were going to live happily ever after. Because I loved him, and he loved me so much. And he was very, very sorry. He had just been really stressed out by the wedding and by becoming a family with me. It was an isolated incident, and he was never going to hurt me again. It happened twice more on the honeymoon. The first time, I was driving to find a secret beach, and I got lost. And he punched me in the side of my head so hard that the other side of my head repeatedly hit the driver's side window. And then a few days later, driving home from our honeymoon, he got frustrated by traffic, and he threw a cold Big Mac in my face. Connor proceeded to beat me once or twice a week for the next two and a half years of our marriage. I was mistaken in thinking that I was unique and alone in this situation. One in three American women experiences domestic violence or stalking at some point in her life. And the CDC reports that 15 million children are abused every year. 15 million. So actually, I was in very good company. Back to my question. Why did I stay? The answer is easy. I didn't know he was abusing me. Even though he held those loaded guns to my head, pushed me downstairs, threatened to kill our dog, pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the highway, poured coffee grinds on my head as I dressed for a job interview, I never once thought of myself as a battered wife. Instead, I was a very strong woman in love with a deeply troubled man, and I was the only person on earth who could help Connor face his demons. The other question everybody asks is, why doesn't she just leave? Why didn't I walk out? I could have left any time. To me, this is the saddest and most painful question that people ask, because we victims know something you usually don't. It's incredibly dangerous to leave an abuser. Because the final step in the domestic violence pattern is kill her. Over 70% of domestic violence murders happen after the victim has ended the relationship, after she's gotten out, because then the abuser has nothing left to lose. Other outcomes include long-term stalking, even after the abuser remarries denial of financial resources, and manipulation of the family court system to terrify the victim and her children, who are regularly forced by family court judges to spend unsupervised time with the man who beat their mother. And still we ask, why doesn't she just leave? I was able to leave because of one final sadistic beating that broke through my denial. 
I realized that the man who I loved so much was going to kill me if I let him. So I broke the silence. I told everyone. The police, my neighbors, my friends and family, total strangers. And I'm here today because you all helped me. We tend to stereotype victims as grisly headlines, self-destructive women, damaged goods. The question, why does she stay, is code for some people for it's her fault for staying. As if victims intentionally choose to fall in love with men intent upon destroying us. But since publishing Crazy Love, I have heard hundreds of stories from men and women who also got out who learned an invaluable life lesson from what happened, and who rebuilt lives, joyous, happy lives, as employees, wives, and mothers, lives completely free of violence, like me. Because it turns out that I'm actually a very typical domestic violence victim and a typical domestic violence survivor. I remarried a kind and gentle man. We have those three kids. I have that black lab, and I have that minivan. What I will never have again, ever, is a loaded gun held to my head by someone who says that he loves me. Now, right now, maybe you're thinking, wow, this is fascinating, or wow, how stupid was she? But this whole time, I've actually been talking about you. I promise you, there are several people listening to me right now who are currently being abused, or who were abused as children, or who are abusers themselves. Abuse could be affecting your daughter, your sister, your best friend right now. I was able to end my own crazy love story by breaking the silence. I'm still breaking the silence today. It's my way of helping other victims. And it's my final request of you. Talk about what you heard here. Abuse thrives only in silence. You have the power to end domestic violence simply by shining a spotlight on it. We victims need everyone. We need every one of you to understand the secrets of domestic violence. Show abuse the light of day by talking about it with your children, your coworkers, your friends and family. Recast survivors as wonderful, lovable people with full futures. Recognize the early signs of violence and conscientiously intervene, de-escalate it, show victims a safe way out. Together, we can make our beds, our dinner tables, and our families the safe and peaceful oases they should be. Thank you. Thank you.
gonna drive me away from home Trying to drive me away from home And the blues so bad Blues followed me all day long Sending a video letter directly to you, sir. And the only reason I call you sir is because the office that you hold is supposed to be a respectable office. But so I just want to speak directly to you, Mr. Trump. I know you may never get this video. Maybe you will, though, because at least I have white skin like you. But first, I wanted to applaud you for one thing and only one thing. Um, many racists in politics are very covert so I applaud you for being an open racist and I applaud you for 
at least letting us see just how racist you are. And it's now it's it's well established worldwide that you are a bona fide white supremacist. Um, there's not a nation that hasn't condemned you as a racist. So you have dishonored and disgraced one of the the highest office offices in the land. But I wanted to say one thing. You made a comment yesterday about shithole countries, poor, black, brown countries. So because they're poor, because they're black and brown and not white or European, you consider them shitholes. Well, I wanted to give you an accurate definition of a shithole nation. A shithole nation, by definition, would be a nation like America that allows and tolerates a racist to operate in their highest office, the presidency. That is a shithole nation. A nation that tolerates a racist president. There is no worse pile of shit or turd in the toilet out of all the other countries than a great nation like America that allows its president to be an open white supremacist and then to allow them to continue to function as president. That's the biggest turd in the pot, or as you say, the biggest shithole. Why? Because you, Mr. Trump, are the shit, the turd, in the White House that's staining and putting the foul odor all over our nation. And of course, the only reason you're there is because you're a racist. You're a complete and utter idiot with no competency whatsoever to be where you're at. The only reason you're there is because we had a black president and our racist nation wanted a racist president after a black president. So until America can get past its racism, which I don't know if it ever has, because there's one thing about black folks, Mr. Trump. Black folks have always understood one thing. The more things change in this country, the more they stay the same. You are living proof that any white person, no matter how racist they are, and matter of fact, racism is actually more of a compliment in this nation. It's like apple pie racism in America. They go hand in hand. If you're a white American, you're a racist, and you've, and you've proven that. And not only are you a racist, if you're a racist, you get rewarded for being a racist in this country. Why? Because we are a racist organization called America. Fact. And nothing has changed. In 400 years, what has really changed? We're still seeing black and brown folks executed in the street. Not that you and Jeff Sessions or any of your racist motherfucking cabinet care. You don't give a fuck about justice for people of color. You're all a group of white nationalists. So I just want to tell you, here's one white guy, and I'm telling you personally, Donald Trump, kiss my white fat ass. I hate you, Donald Trump. I literally hate you. And I pray to God you get impeached. You're an embarrassment to our nation and upon the world. Please do us all a favor. 
and resign. The only people that want you in office are more racist. And yes, I know that our country, the majority of white people are racist. And the majority of white people totally and completely support you. I really believe that. Because they're not supporting you, then they're silently ignoring your racism. But anyhow, please do us all a favor. In Congress, please act to remove this racist motherfucker and his racist administration, or Congress is no better. Republican Florida Senator Marco Rubio gave an interview with Politico this week where he explained, without mincing words whatsoever, that once the Republicans are finished with their disgusting tax cut package for millionaires and billionaires, they're going to help offset those costs by cutting Social Security and Medicare in the United States. Now, if you're unfamiliar with those programs, Social Security is the program that you pay into throughout your entire life so that you can get a little bit of money back when you retire. Maybe it's enough so you don't have to work. In most cases, it's enough to wear a part-time job and your Social Security money 
will be able to get you through during your golden years. You'll never be able to fully retire, but at least you'll have a little bit coming to you. Medicare is the uh, uh, program for senior citizens that provides partial health insurance for some things, doesn't cover everything. Most of them have to go buy a supplemental plan, but at least it helps them out to an extent. And Marco Rubio says that because these Republican tax cuts are going to, you know, add trillions to the deficit, those nasty little social security and Medicare payments are going to be drastically reduced because we've got to get more money to the rich in the United States. Marco Rubio wants to send your grandparents or possibly even yourself. He wants to ship you down the river because he wants to give more money to his wealthy donors. Grandma and grandpa in this instance are going to be screwed. They're never going to be able to retire. They're going to keep working till the day they die just because they won't be able to afford health insurance and they won't be able to retire because social security will be cut down to nothing. And more importantly, Rubio is absolutely lying. During this Politico interview, Rubio told us that the main drivers of the debt and the deficit are social security and Medicare because the way those programs are structured is just screwing everything up. There are no facts in this country that support Rubio's claim there. None. There is nothing wrong with social security. There is nothing wrong with Medicare. The only problem with those two programs is that they don't go far enough. Marco Rubio is a liar. Marco Rubio is a human sack of crap. How about that? How about we just stop mincing words? How about we stop being polite? How about we just call these morons what they are? Because that's the point that I am at here. I am absolutely sick and tired of seeing these disgusting, worthless wastes of oxygen. People like Marco Rubio going forward, lying to the public, lying with a straight face, lying with impunity, screwing over everyone so that they can give their wealthy donors more money. That is what this is about. That is what Republicans want to do. And that is the only thing that they know how to do. So grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, you're going to get screwed under the Republican rule that currently takes hold in Washington, DC. But the wealthy elite, if you're already a millionaire, already a billionaire and have nothing to worry about, they want to actually just hand you more cash each year because they're hopeful some of that cash is going to find its way back into their campaigns. These people are absolutely disgusting. Thanks for watching. And if you like what you see here on